is my voice tonight to try to be as clear as I can for you. Can you can you read the whole thing? Okay. First Corinthians chapter six. Oh, uh, let me turn that down for you. Sexual immorality is a real problem for sinners. So Paul challenges the Corinthians in the church there in Corinth about allowing an unrepentant, immoral man to remain a member in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, he challenges them on suing one another. And then he concludes that section with the list of sins that, if practiced, will prevent a person from receiving eternal life. We finished by looking at that last time. Here, at the end of chapter 6, he goes back to the topic of immorality. This time, the focus is not on church membership and how we need to remove someone who is being immoral, but rather, the focus is on individual holiness. That is, <coughs> that, is that each believer must glorify God with his body. And what we should notice tonight is not that Paul is saying there are immoral people out there. There are people out there who struggle with immorality. That is true. But what he's saying is there are people in here who are struggling with immorality. So the reason that we, like Corinth, need to look at this sin of immorality with seriousness tonight is, um, actually there are two reasons we need to look at this. First, it's next in the passage that we're scheduled to look at. So it makes sense to just listen to what God has to say in the text. Secondly, we need to talk about we need to talk about immorality and some of these issues that the Bible, that the Bible brings up before the glass breaks, so to speak. Right? Once the glass breaks, we go scrambling around trying to clean it all up and try to see how we can prevent it from happening again. What I mean by that is, you know, once immorality some scandal or some huge sin happens, then that's when we go scrambling to try to figure out, okay, what does the Bible say about immorality and how do we talk about it? Um, here, we have a text of Scripture uh, that helps us just bring up the issue. So we're not doing it because we know of anything that's going on. I don't know of any um, overt immorality that's going on in the church. But, but now, because it's in the text, I can talk about it. See? And we here have a safe place where we can talk about this sin that every human struggles with to one degree or another. And what better way to do that than before the glass breaks, so to speak, right? So that we're, we know what the Bible says before those types of issues come up in our own lives or in the lives of someone else in our church. All right, so let me, actually, let me have, uh, Jonathan, would you mind reading this text for us?
thank you. So here in this text, very simply, our responsibility, um, the clear direction of the text, the clear application of the text is that I must glorify God with my body. And I put it in a first person singular to show that body here is not referring to the church body as a whole, like we saw in chapter 3. We'll talk about that here in just a second. But it's talking about my individual body now. Okay, before, it was a problem for the church, for there to be division in the body of Christ, speaking of the church body. Here, I think based on um, what we can see in the text, it's talking about individual body. Therefore, the point is, is that I must glorify God with my body. So I think what Paul does here is he answers four, he answers a question with four, um, with four, four answers, and the question is why should I be concerned about immorality? Why should I be serious about the sin of immorality? <clears throat> First answer is found in verse twelve. I should be concerned about immorality because my body is free, but not that kind of free. My body is free, but not that kind of free. So here Paul begins by quoting a slogan that the Corinthian church likely picked up from their study of the Gospels. And it's not clear, if you look at the New American Standard, where they're talking and he's just quoting them and where he's responding to them. So let's read the, the verse here, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So where's Paul responding to them? Where are they speaking? And it seems to me that the ESV and the NIV make it very clear, and they do it by marking off the slogan that the Corinthians were using with quotation marks. So does anyone have an ESV or an NIV? Tell us what that... Okay, so all, what, what do you have? ESV, all things are lawful for me. And is it both times? Is that what you have, Paul? Okay. The NIV does the same thing. So they put in quotation marks, makes it helpful to see uh, what they were saying. So you say is effectively what they're doing here. They're saying, you say all things are lawful for me. And here's Paul's response. Two things. First, but I would say to you, not all things are profitable. And then he repeats their slogan. You say, all things are lawful for me, but I say, I will not be mastered by anything. So do you see what's going on there? Corinthians have picked up on a principle that Jesus had taught. This would be the modern equivalent of a retweet. Okay, they just took Jesus' statement, didn't understand what he was saying about it, and they retweeted it. And then they tried to apply it to their own situation. They didn't do a very good job. You see, the, believe, the Corinthians believed that when Jesus came, he removed them from the fetters of the law, the Old Testament law. Is that true? Did Jesus deliver us from the tyranny of the law of Moses? Absolutely he did. Right? And so they probably picked this up from Mark chapter 2. And uh, you don't have to turn there, but at that time, the disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisee says to Jesus, notice this, this wording here. I think it connects with our text. Is it lawful for a person to work on the Sabbath? Is it lawful? And Jesus responds by, by telling them a story from the Old Testament. He says, well, what happened with David? Do you remember when David, David came to the tabernacle? And he was hungry. What did he do? He ate the consecrated showbread, which was unlawful to eat, Jesus said. So what was he doing there? He's recognizing that the law was there not to destroy a person. It wasn't to make them um, more vulnerable, more weak. It was actually meant to, to be for their good. So that when he was in a situation where he would either starve or break a law, a lesser law, we could say, then he was right to do that. And Jesus is actually commending what David did. So he's saying to you Pharisees, you know that, you know that story, you don't have any problem with what David did there. And so what's he doing with that story? 
Well, listen to his response. Jesus responds before he, he kind of makes the application to them. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So they're saying, is it lawful for the disciples to work on the Sabbath? They're picking grain. And Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man. You see which one's subordinate to the other? Sabbath, man. Man's more important than the Sabbath, not the other way around. See, if we make Sabbath our master, then yes, you, sh- you know, let's say, if you make those laws about the consecrated bread, if you make that our master, then David's not going to eat. But he did eat because David's more important than these lesser laws. And Jesus says, by the way, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So what's he saying to the, the Pharisees? They're saying, is it lawful to work on the Sabbath? Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, so I know what the Sabbath is for. And keep in mind that the Sabbath was made for man. So, back to the Corinthians now. The Corinthians take this solid principle of Christian freedom. Absolutely, Jesus has freed us from the law. Amen. And they've turned it into a license to do whatever they want. So that when someone tries to approach them on the issue of immorality, for example, their response is, hey, I'm free. I got my Christian liberty. I can do whatever I want. Because Christ paid for it all on the cross. Christ paid all of my sins, past, present, (coughs) excuse me, past, present, and future. And Paul's saying, you're right. You are free. But you're not that kind of free. You see, Christian freedom does not mean freedom from restraint. We were freed from the Old Testament law. We were effectively shackled under the tyranny of the Old Testament law. It didn't bring us to God. It only showed us our sin. So now that Jesus has come, we're freed from those restraints, and now, hey, I can just do whatever I want. And Jesus says, or or Paul says, no, that's not the point. See, we still are. We're re-enslaved. We'll see this later here in the text. But we became unenslaved to our sin, our master's sin, but we come become re-enslaved to Jesus. So he's our master. So now we do have a responsibility with how we treat our bodies. So Paul's saying, all things are lawful for you. That's true. But it's not profitable, and you cannot be mastered by it. So immorality doesn't fit. So the first reason that I should be concerned about my immorality is because my body is free, but not that kind of free. The second reason I should be concerned about immorality is because my body will die, but not eternally. Verses 13 through 14. My body will die, but not eternally. Here comes a second slogan from the Corinthians. And it begins in verse 13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Now again, this is hard to determine where do where is Paul quoting their slogan and where is he responding to their slogan. And again, the New American Standard, King James, don't help us in that regard. They don't give us the quotations. And by the way, the reason for that is because the Greek translation or the Greek manuscripts don't have quotation marks. They don't have punctuation almost at all. So they're basically just um, what your English teacher hated when you were in school, the run-on sentences, just kept going and going, no punctuation. And, and actually in the Greek, they actually have no spaces either. So it, it can be a little bit complex. But, but based on the sense of the text, translators have an idea of what's going on here. They, they understand the larger picture. So I think um, the ESV has... The food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, all in quotation marks. And then Paul's responding, but God will do away with them both. But I think the NIV actually has it right that they're actually saying this whole th- this whole part of this whole part, excuse me, of verse 13. Food is for the stomach, the stomach's for food, but God will do away with both of them. So here's what they were saying. See, my food. The fact that I eat is something that's just part of my body. 
right? It's, it's, it fulfills, it satisfies my appetite, and at some point, it's all going to go away. So what does it matter what I eat? And, and I think what's going on here is that, again, they're picking up from a teaching of Jesus, but they're misapplying it to their own lives. The teaching is Mark seven nineteen, right? Um, the disciples were concerned about food, and so Jesus says, listen, it's not so much what kind of food goes into your body. All these food laws, I mean, they're just, you have to eat only clean animals and all that stuff. Okay, it's not so much what goes in your body, but what? What comes out of your heart, right? Because out of the abundance of the heart, heart, the mouth speaks. That's where all the sin is. It's not when we put some kind of a food in our mouth and it somehow contaminates our person. That's not it. See, that's not why the Old Testament had those. That's not why God laid down those food laws in the Old Testament because it's somehow contaminating us physically, uh, them, the Jews. No, the purpose of that was just to set them apart as different, as holy, as consecrated. So the Corinthians, I think, are picking up on that and say, see, even Jesus says, it's not so much the food that's important. So they're starting to make this false distinction. They've actually taken a principle of Jesus and taken it too far. Jesus said, the food is not the most important. The heart is. And what they're saying is, the food is not important at all. And they took it one step further by saying, um, by applying this idea of food to their sexual organs. So just like food is a bodily appetite that I have to feed, so is my sexual desire. My sexual pleasure is a bodily appetite. And just like food and my my mouth, my digestive system, all going to pass away at some point, right? So is my desire for sexual things and, and, and so on. So you see what's happened? They've taken, a, they've taken a principle of Jesus that the most important thing is not the food, and they've taken it too far by saying that it doesn't really matter at all. The physical. The physical doesn't matter at all. And I think what they've done is actually made a false uh, distinction between body and soul. As if the most important part of us is the unseen part, the soul or the spirit. The part that's not important is our body. Who cares what we do with our body, right? It's going to pass away. And so Paul, I think, wants to respond to that. Look at the end of verse 13 and see how he responds. Yet... The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. So their argument is, listen, my body's passing away. I can do with it whatever I want. By the way, by the way that's very popular. Uh, that was very popular in their day. It's what scholars call today platonic dualism the separation of the body and the soul. So the most important part of me is my internal person. My body doesn't matter. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are a whole person, body and soul, and we can't separate the two. Right? Have you ever shown up somewhere and left your soul at home? Or have you ever shown up somewhere and left your body at home? Okay, if you did, you're probably dead. No, we're one person. Right? We, we are all one person. We can't separate those two. And that idea of splitting them as if, you know, the bodies, that's for all the, the nasty, dirty, disgusting things. But the, the soul, that can be real spiritual. Even while the body's doing, you know, the, these acts of immorality. That kind of lie that the Corinthians basically adopted from the pagan culture and connected to, syncretized with Jesus' true principle is from the very pit of hell. And Paul's response is twofold. First, my body belongs to the Lord, verse 13. See, my body is not for immorality, but it's for the Lord. And then the second response is in verse 14, and that is, that while our 
individual bodies will die. They will not die eternally. They will be raised from the dead. So yes, Paul says your body will pass away, but but what you're ignoring here is the doctrine of the resurrection. Don't miss out on that. And so here's the reason Paul gives here for why they should not engage in immorality. It's because Christ rose from the dead and that he guarantees that all who are in him, who have trusted in him, will also be raised with him. They will be raised from the dead. So so don't just treat your body as if, you know what? It doesn't matter. Got a couple more decades to live and live it out however I want. No, my body is going to be raised from the dead, and so I must treat it as if it's eternal because it is. The third reason I should be concerned about immorality is because my body feels independent but is united with Christ. It feels like I'm an individual person, but when you become a believer, you are united with Christ. Verses 15 through 17. So the first two reasons are important. You know, he, he's like, you're, you're starting to move into Christian liberty, so don't commit immorality because that's not what Christian liberty is. Okay? It doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. Of course, the second one is, you know, don't just treat your body however you want. You shouldn't be involved in immorality because your body's going to to actually be resurrected. But now the third one moves our thinking to a, a whole new level. And, and to introduce this critical third reason, Paul begins with one of his favorite opening lines. In verse 15. Do you not know? Do you not know? And what was it that they should have known? Well, verse 15 tells us, they should have known that their bodies were united with Christ. That is, that each one of us believers is united with Christ when we trust in Him. When we come to salvation in Jesus Christ, we are united with Christ in His death, in His life, in His resurrection. So, if that's true, if we're confident about the doctrine of unity, union with Christ, if we're confident about that, then what does that mean when one of us gives our body to a prostitute? That's Paul's point. See, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You're, you're united with Him. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? I mean, would it ever be right for a person to commit acts of immorality and in effect join his body, which been, has been united with Christ, to a prostitute? I mean, think about how blasphemous, how evil that is. Of course, his response there at the end of verse 15 is the strongest adversative in all the Greek language, which is, may it never be, or God forbid. Uh, why? Why is the sin of immorality so disgraceful? Verse 16. Again. <coughs> Again, he opens with this uh, phrase of his that he likes. And do you, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? See, sexual union is not just a non-consequential, external, non-issue. We just, you know, it's just something that people do. No, sexual intimacy is a whole person commitment. So that when a person joins his body to a prostitute, he is joining more than just his body. That's the point. We are whole persons. So for us to commit acts of immorality is to join our whole bodies in that act and who are our bodies, our whole persons, united with? With Christ. You see, when we came to Christ, we are already one flesh with Him. And now we're taking and abusing our relationship with Christ by giving our body over to another blatant sinner. 
we've given our whole person away. Verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So that, there's the point, okay? When, when a person joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one with her. But, verse 17, when you join yourself to the Lord in salvation, you are one spirit with him. So it doesn't make sense to already be united to Christ and then to engage in an act of immorality because Christ is holy. And therefore, we must be holy. He has a claim on us. It doesn't make sense for us to give our body to a harlot when Christ has already claimed our body. And I, I skipped over the end of verse 16, but um, uses the Old Testament Genesis 2 reference there. The two shall become one flesh to prove that the, the union of a man and a woman in an intimate relationship joins them together as one. And he does that in order to prove that both giving your body to a prostitute joins you as one with her and giving your body to Jesus, not in a non-sexual way, but giving your body to Jesus in the sense that you come to salvation, you become one flesh with him effectively. So it doesn't make sense for us to give our bodies over to immorality. Is that clear? All right, fourth reason why I should be concerned about immorality Already there. Thank you, Eric. Um, my body feels like mine, but it's actually the dwelling place of God. Verses 18 through 20. Again, these first two reasons that we looked at are important, but here we, we are at a, a very, very much a higher level. My body is going to Christ, and now here's this amazing truth in verses 18 through 20, and that is that my individual body is actually a dwelling place, a temple of the living God. So let me just show you the commands and then I'll show you the reasons why we should avoid sexual immorality. The command is in verse 18. Is it first two words there? Flee immorality. And then the second command is inseparably linked to it is at the end of verse 20. Therefore glorify God in your body. So, we could ask the question very simply, how do I glorify God in my body? That's what we said the, the theme of this text is. I must glorify God with my body. How do I do that? Well, verse 18, I need to flee immorality. You see? So I glorify God in this text with my body by fleeing from immorality. Why? Why must I glorify God by avoiding sexual immorality? Two reasons. First, look in verse 20. I have been purchased, my body has been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. For you have been bought with a price. Again, this goes back to the idea of ownership. Like we were talking about before, that, you know, yes, I'm freed from my former master's sin, but I'm not free to do whatever I want. I now have a new master. And he paid... My master, God the Father, paid the highest price possible for my redemption, which was what? What's it say there in the text? What does it say? Verse 20. No, it doesn't say. Sorry about that. Um, I think it's First Peter. I didn't write down the text. Yeah, First Peter 1.18. Gave you a trick question there. Yeah, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So you were bought with a price. And the highest price had to be paid in order for you to be redeemed from the pit of hell. And for you and I to be redeemed from, from our own sin that was destroying us. God had to pay the highest price, which was the blood of His own Son. And He did that. So what does He deserve? What, what does He get in return if He's redeeming us? The idea of redeeming is, right, He's ransoming us. He's paying for 
the price that is necessary for us to be freed from our other master's sins. What does he get for that? Is he just kind of like, okay, you know, you're in chains here. I'm taking your chains off. Now you just go. Go out in the wilderness. Do whatever you want. No, you come and you're now my servant. Right? You have been bought with the price and therefore glorify God. Glorify your new master with your body. Do you see? My body doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it belongs to God, and so I must glorify God with my body. So my body might feel like it's mine, but it's actually a dwelling place of God. Verses 18 and 19. The second reason we're doing is in reverse in this section second reason that we must glorify God by avoiding sexual immorality is that we are the very dwelling place of God. So first, it's because we've been purchased by Christ's blood, and second, because God indwells us. And again, we've already seen that the sin of immorality is not just a sin of our external passing away part. It's a sin of our whole person. You see that in the text? Look at verse 18. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. See, other sins that we commit are done outside the body. So, like murder, stealing, lying. Those are done outside the body. But there's something different about immorality because... It's, as one scholar, Thistleton, writes, he says, immorality is a self-commitment involving the whole person. So, Paul says, every other sin is done outside of the body. He's not saying that a, a person can't do harm to their own body, right? Can you think of any sins where a person can do harm to their body? Okay, cutting yourself. Suicide drunkenness, gluttony. Right? These kinds of sins can be done and they can do damage to our body, but, but that's not the point here. For sexuality, it's, or sexual immorality, I'll make that clear, because um, obviously an intimate relationship within a marriage is a beautiful thing and ought to be done. And we'll talk about that next week when we get to chapter 7. But, but what I'm talking about is sexual immorality. That's what Paul's talking about. He's saying... Those types of sins, you know, gluttony, drunkenness, suicide, those are damaging to my body. But, but this one actually involves immorality as something on a different level because we are violating our whole person. And why is that? Because our whole person belongs to God. Our, our whole person is united with Christ. And our whole person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Look at verse 19. <clears throat> again, his, his favorite question again. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So, if you want to put this in the form of a statement, we would say, you are not your own. Because the Holy Spirit lives in you. Now, this is different from what we saw in chapter 3. Let me take you back there because I argued in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that that was not talking about individual bodies, but rather a corporate body, the church. So, verse 16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Now, how did we know from chapter 3 that this was talking about the whole church and not just the individual body, not individual person? What was that? Okay, he uses plural. What else? What was the context? Right, this is how we interpret. This is how we know what the meaning of the author was. We have to know what the context is. And what was the context in chapter 3? Division. Right? I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. 
Paul says, you see what you're doing? You're destroying one another. Anyone who destroys the body, collective, whole, has actually, uh, will actually be destroyed by God. That's what verse 17 says. So in that case, he's saying the whole body, the, all of believers in a local setting are indwelt. That This body, when we come together, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. So we can't be divided. It doesn't make sense for one you know, unit to be over here, one unit to be over there. People um, bickering and, and complaining against one another. No, it doesn't make sense. Now turn to chapter 6. And again, we have a very similar language. The difference is that the context. What was Paul talking about in the context? Okay, you might not want to say it, but he's talking about having sex with a prostitute. Now, that's something that the whole church is doing, that the corporate body is doing with an individual prostitute. No, apparently there were a few or multiple believers in the church who were doing this. And so based on the context, he's saying it doesn't, doesn't work for any one of you to give his body to a prostitute. So now, when we come to our text, verse 19, when he asks this question, he's actually referring to an individual body, not the corporate body, like he was in chapter 3. Here he says, Or do you not know that your, and I'll just include this word, individual body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. And again, we, we can know this, this is talking about individual body because of verse 18. kind of gives us a clue right at the end of the verse. But the immoral man sins against his own body. So he's not talking about sinning against his own church. He's talking about sinning against his own body and committing this sexual immorality. So let that sink in for you. That you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are the very dwelling place of God. Now, consider that in light of how sacred the Old Testament tabernacle and temple were Something to just kind of be flippant or profane about. Someone to just kind of just stumble in there, drunk, commit acts of immorality inside the temple. God okay with that? People going around just peeking in inside the curtains to see what kind of objects are in there. Oh, there's the lampstand. God okay with that? How sacred was the Old Testament dwelling place of God? We've been seeing this in Numbers, right? God basically washes them before He can come and live among them. And then in chapter 3, how serious is it to destroy God's temple, the church? Anyone who destroys the temple by being divisive, God will destroy them. So, just from those two examples, where we have seen God's dwelling place, God is not profane about where He, where he plants His flag. And now, so consider that in light of the truth that we see here in verse 19, and that is that you, as an individual believer, are actually a dwelling place of God. You see, just like the Old Testament temple did not belong to Israel, they could not just make up their own rules. They could not do whatever they pleased with the temple. Right? They had specific laws that God set down for how they would live in that dwelling place or around it. And then take our second example in the church. 
1 Corinthians 3, the dwelling place of God is the local church. And the local church does not belong to us. And a lot of time we like to say, my church, as if I've got ownership. I'm here long enough. I've, I've got it. have my name on the building or something. It's not my church. It's not your church. It doesn't belong to us. We can't do whatever we want here. It's God's church. So we need to follow what He wants us to do. And the same thing is true about God's dwelling place, my body. My individual body does not belong to me. I cannot do whatever I please. I am a walking place where God's presence resides. I'm not the owner of my body. I'm simply a manager. So how could I ever, I who, who, who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, ever join my body to another in immorality? Joseph serves as a great example for us when he was being seduced by Potiphar's wife. In Genesis 39.9, he says to Potiphar's wife, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph had a high view of God and he utterly hated sin. How often do we look at sin like that? Especially the the sin of immorality. I mean, sometimes you, you wouldn't say this, but you might think this. What's the big deal with doing this evil? And who really cares if I sin against God? It's all paid for under the blood. And yet we ought to see our sin like Joseph saw his sin, which is that it is a, it is a disgrace to our father. And we would hate to see our father disgraced by us. Right, when we were young, growing up, we obeyed our father. And sometimes we did it because we didn't want to be punished by him. We were fearful him, of him. But, but when we grew older, we're no longer afraid of him punishing us, but rather of losing the sweet fellowship that we have with him, the sweet relationship we, we would hate, hate to ever disgrace him, ever cause him grief. And that's ought, that ought to be our maturing relationship with our God. It's not that, you know, we're, we want to avoid the, the lightning as much. As we grow in, at, as believers, we ought to be more, you know what, this disgraces my father. Why would I ever want to do that? He dwells within me, the person of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> All right, lots of principles and application that we've already looked at, so I'm going to skip over those and go to an observation and an encouragement, a word of encouragement. So first, an observation. Sometimes God appeals to us on the basis of reason. As I was finishing up my study of this passage today. I was thinking about this idea that, that God could have really simplified this passage for us, right? If he wanted to just keep us from immorality, how do you think he could sum up this entire passage with one command? What might he say to us? Right. Don't commit adultery or, verse 18, flee immorality. That's simple. Or he could have just said, glorify God with your body. Just do it. Stop committing immorality. Start glorifying me with your body. But you know, God is like a gracious father of teenagers who reasons with his children on the basis of multiple factors. Right? Reason doesn't work as well with toddlers, does it? When your toddler's about to put his little finger near an outlet, you don't reason with him on how electricity works. Or you don't show him pictures of other toddlers who have been damaged by putting their finger in an electrical socket, right? 
what good would that do to a toddler? No, you simply tell him no. And if he doesn't listen, you discipline him so that he knows that the pain that you inflict upon him is much less than the pain he would receive if he disobeyed you. He wants to recognize that disobeying you in this regard is going to cause him harm. You're protecting him from greater harm, aren't you? But I hope that if your teenager is about to stick a butter knife into a light socket or an electrical socket, I'm guessing you're not going to simply say, no, 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 honey. And that might be part of it. But I'm guessing that you're going to actually reason with him. You're going to explain the dangers of doing this. You're going to talk about what it means to grow up. Just from personal experience, I've learned that as my kids get older, the answer of because I said so doesn't work as well. They're reasoning creatures. They're, they're becoming mature adults. And so the, just the, just do it. Because I said so. It doesn't work as well. And it's not about what works and what doesn't work ultimately. And we, we do have to recognize that what I don't want us to hear is, okay, well, God gives me other commands and he doesn't explain them, so I don't have to obey him. That's not what I'm saying. When God gives a command, that should be enough. But what I'm saying is this is God's gracious nature where he goes beyond just saying, flee immorality, stop it. And he gives us rational reasons why would we, we would want to obey that prohibition. I mean, he has every right to just give us a command and then that's it. But he knows that we are rational human beings and he knows that, that he desires to have a, <coughs> a relationship with us. And so while a simple command would be enough, a simple command combined with a reasoning argument is actually better. And so in many cases, God generously does that for us. And in this case, he says, don't you know what you're doing when you commit immorality? Don't you know what you're doing to your body? Don't you know what you're doing to your Savior with whom you're united? Don't you know what you're doing to the Holy Spirit of God who lives within you? So observation and then a word of encouragement. Our church is here for you. When the glass breaks, when the immorality happens, when when you commit immorality, I don't want to sound like, oh, just act it. When you fall into immorality, our church is here for you. And our church is here for you before you fall into immorality. I don't know where you are right now, with your mind or with your eyes or with the rest of your body. Perhaps you're struggling with a serious sexual sin that you can't escape on your own. Don't wait to talk to talk to a concerned brother or sister in Christ. Don't wait until you have destroyed your body. Don't wait until you've offered up your whole person and immorality. Don't wait until you've united your body, which is united with Christ, to a prostitute. Don't wait until you've defiled the very dwelling place of God. The church is here for you. And, and we hate sin. But we love the grace that God pours out on us. And we humbly come to him. And that's a lot of times what happens when it comes to sexual sin. It's all about pride. We don't want to be exposed or we don't want to kind of be embarrassed by talking to someone else. Okay? When you talk to someone else, it doesn't have to be known by everybody. It's not going to show up in the bulletin or, or be 
announced in front of everybody. But I can assure you, if it gets to a place where it becomes serious and unrepentant, it will be announced. Our church is serious about sin in that way. Don't let it get that far. Recognize that there are people here who love you. I love you. I, I want to see you grow in godliness. I want to see you protected from that which will destroy you. And I would be glad to help you, and I know uh, any number of members would, would be glad to do the same. All right, let's pray. Oh, thank you for this reminder. Uh, difficult topic to talk about, difficult topic to listen to. Uh, especially in our day when we see so much rampant immorality outside of us and so we can kind of compare ourselves to that and we're not even close to that and not involved in those kinds of blatant, ugly sins. But that's not our standard of measure. Our standard of measure is your word. And so as we look at your word tonight, humble us, Father. Show us where we have failed you. Show us where we are harboring immoral sin in our hearts. And for those who are on the brink of disaster, Lord, would you rescue them by the power of your spirit who lives within them. Draw them back to yourself. And do it through um, this text of scripture and also through brothers and sisters who love them. And we're praying for them. 